On January 7, 1912, Charles Samuel Adams was born in the small town of Westfield, New Jersey. Now, Charles himself you might not be familiar with, but surely you're familiar with the family that shares his name, the Adams family. This kooky and spooky family has beguiled the United States for well over 80 years now. In many cases, they are the basis for many of our cultural traditions and continue to inspire new iterations of the story of this family. But you may not be surprised to learn that their family and Charles Adams' story starts in a cemetery. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So this week's kind of a fun topic. Um, if you follow along on social media, you know I posted a couple of stills from The Pale Blue Eye, which is the new Netflix film that was released based on Louis Bayard's novel of the same name. And there are a couple of key scenes from the story that happened in a cemetery. It was filmed in Allegheny Cemetery. And I easily got the most DMs that I ever have on any topic. Now, it was also timely because I watched this movie maybe two or three days after it came out. So everybody was wondering about it. But it led me to believe that people are interested in the cemeteries that they see on screen, or rather in cemetery stories related to modern pop culture. So, obviously, Wednesday has been enjoying a very prominent um, headline since November, when it was released, November or October. You know, one of the top screen shows ever on Netflix. Certainly, The Addams Family is nothing new. <clears throat> and I confess, I saw Wednesday. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, I was never really an Addams Family person, though. For someone who talks about cemeteries, I have come to realize that I am... Somewhat of the exception rather than the rule. I never have been a huge fan of ghost stories or spooky things like that. And as a child, I remember watching the Adams Family movies. And I didn't get them. They just did not register with me, which I know is not the case for many people. And having read about the Adams Family and having looked into the life of Charles Adams, I think it's it's definitely an interesting phenomenon. I read a lot of quotes. Um, I read a decent amount of his biography, a lot of different articles from people who knew him and worked with him at The New Yorker and in other places. He's an interesting guy. And while his career went far beyond the Adams family, that is without a doubt what he is best known for. And... You know, I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but the Adams family continues to resonate for a lot of reasons. I think part of it is the way that he created them. Part of it was that they were relatable in many senses. And when you look at the name of this episode, you know, Normal is an Illusion, that was actually a line from one of his comics where Morticia Adams makes the observation that normalcy being an illusion, what's normal for the spider is chaos for the fly. And I think that the Adams family, if I have to come to one conclusion from this, and I'll say it up front, is they explore that. They explore that there is no one normal. 
that all of our talk about the new normal and things like that is really just something that we say to make ourselves feel better. And certainly in a podcast that talks about death and dying and memorialization, that's something important to remember. So I'm going to talk first about Charles Adams himself, give you a little bit of the background, um, the basic information, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about the cemetery that started it all. Because yes, at least from what I can tell, it did start with a cemetery. And I think this will be particularly fascinating for taphophiles like myself, because we all have a cemetery that started that story for us. We all had the cemetery that was the gateway drug that led us down the road to explore more. Now, cemeteries are a draw for a number of different reasons. But the fact is, we all got drawn in by something. And Charles Adams is certainly no exception to that rule. And I think that his story is an interesting one. There is a ring of truth in everything that he created, and the cemetery that started it is actually quite a fascinating one. And I'm going to be stepping a little bit outside my comfort zone because it's one of the eras of cemetery history that I am less familiar with and less comfortable with. So bear with me if you are an expert in that colonial era of, of tombstones. And especially I'm going to ask my, uh, my compatriots who live in New Jersey to be patient with me. But overall, it's an interesting story. An interesting man, an interesting cemetery, and interesting how the combination of the two resulted in something that is as noteworthy and memorable as the Adams family. I apologize in advance if it feels like I'm jumping around, because I want to give you a little bit of context for the history of Westfield, and then sort of go from there. I'll go a little bit more into Charles Adams, his upbringing, his connection to Westfield, and then I'll talk a little bit about the Adams family, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to wrap up with the cemetery part. So, the town of Westfield gets its names very creatively from its origins, which is that it was the West Fields of the town of Elizabeth. Now, today, this is in Union County. It was not always. But essentially, what it started off as was a village, what was known as the Westfield Ward, a small village on the outskirts of the township of Elizabeth. It's a small piece of land, only about seven square miles, and originally inhabited by, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this because I always do, but the Lenai Lenape people, um, which I always want to say Lenny, like Lenny Bruce, but it's Lenai, which I did not learn until I moved to Philadelphia. For, and I found this very entertaining, two coats, two guns, two kettles, 10 bars of lead, 20 handfuls of gunpowder, very exacting measurement, and 400 fathoms of wampum. Now, Aside from that, I think it's also important to note because even today, if you look at the layout of the town of Westfield, it still follows a lot of the original Indian trails. And the same thing is true of a lot of places. It's not something that's talked about, but you know, the Indian trails, which ran on ridge lines in high places, were the perfect place to build roads. So often, you know, colonial settlers would just build wider or improved versions of the existing trails that were already there. 
And that is very much the truth in Westfield. It wouldn't become its own township until 1794, but its origins are basically a handful of buildings around a tannery. So tanning hides, which were established on the stream in what is today Mindawaskin Park, another Lenape word. And I bring that up because Mindawaskin Park is actually right next to where most of the action in our story takes place. It's a fascinating place for a number of reasons, because you have the establishment of this tannery, there's a tavern and a couple of houses. One of the first things that is established is the Presbyterian Church. Now, this is kind of an unusual occurrence because unlike many settlements, even in the colonial era, this will be the only church in town for well over a hundred years. The second church won't be established until 1850. So when they said the church in this town, they were referring to the Presbyterian church. And in case you haven't already guessed, we will be talking about the Presbyterian Church Cemetery not too long from now. So the Presbyterian Church is founded not long after the town. So the town is generally considered to be settled around 1720. It is laid out before that. It's laid out sometime around 1699. There's kind of like a survey that they actually plot the land. The land develops around this location. So the original church is built in 16, excuse me, 1728. It will be replaced twice more in 1735, then in 1805, and then the final church, which is the one that is still standing today, will be built right at the beginning of the Civil War in 1861. I'm not going to go too much into the early history of this town, but suffice it to say, all of the things that we generally associate with colonial America happened here, including heavy involvement in the Revolutionary War. So while the kind of cradle of the American Revolution is generally considered to be Boston, the pivot point or the turning point is generally considered to be New Jersey. And that's because obviously it is halfway between the major powers in the war you know, you have both the southern and northern colonies. New Jersey is kind of right there in the crux at the middle. It's very close to New York City, very close to Philadelphia, two places that obviously the British would like to capture greatly. The bell that is in the Presbyterian Church plays a very significant role. And if you search for the history of Westfield, you will read all about this damn bell. So the bell was used during the war. Think, you know, Paul Revere, one of my land, two of my sea. It was rung almost constantly as a warning to the townspeople when the British were approaching, which they did all the damn time. This became quite annoying, as you would imagine, but the British were also frustrated because what they would ha what happened was they would come into town and they would loot and pillage and kill livestock and do steal flour and things like that, but were not successful in capturing any traitors because people were always getting forewarned. So eventually in 1777, they actually capture the bell and the bell is thrown from the top of the church. It cracks when it lands, but it is taken as booty back to Staten Island where it spends the remainder of the war. Now, because when the bell was initially cast, it had the name of the town on it, 
after the war, it was returned to the town of Westfield. Cracked, but still there. It was recast in 1847, and it still hangs in the church today. Your useless piece of Revolutionary War trivia about Westfield, New Jersey. But I give this accounting to kind of give you a little bit of a picture. Now, this Revolutionary War history, as it is with many places, was incredibly important to the town. Um, I read the sesquicentennial booklet, and which was published in 1964, and they talk about how there are still 21 original pre-colonial or pre-Revolutionary War houses standing in the town. I don't know how many are standing today. I did try to find that, an elusive piece of information, but suffice it to say it's old. Now, skipping ahead by the 1840s, it was described as, quote, a neat village consisting of 30 to 40 buildings in the vicinity of the Presbyterian Church. I keep saying this because it really emphasizes just how important this damn church was to this town. I'm sorry if I sound frustrated, but it's always entertaining to me to read these histories because they all circle the same few facts. And they managed to do that without telling you a lot of useful information in the process. And I understand, as a historian, it's difficult to sometimes create an interesting narrative. But reading these books, particularly about the colonial period, it, it feels like this could be anywhere. Which is why I pull these stories about the random bell and things like that, because at least they're unique, and at least they give you a little picture of the character of the place. Now, it starts to grow exponentially, um, and by 1883, it's up to nearly a thousand homes from 30 to 40, you know, 40 years before, and with a population of about 3,000. And there is a reason for this. It's because of the 3,000 living in town, approximately 200 are daily commuters to Manhattan. What will happen with Westfield, New Jersey, is it will become a huge sleeper town for Manhattan. Lots of people using the train to commute into the city for work. And that is something that continues to happen today. The modern population is about 30,000. So by 1910, which is right before Charles Adams is born, the population is about 6,500. So it's five times that today. But 30,000 is still pretty small, especially when you consider how close to New York City it is. And really, the train and its proximity to New York are what define this town today. Um, Bloomberg listed it in, in, um, in 2018, excuse me, as the 99th highest income place in the United States with a median income of $159,000, which is about $100,000 over the national average. Coincidentally, in October of 2018, something else very big happened. And that was the very first Adams Fest, the first festival to feature exhibits, lectures, film screenings, a masquerade ball, and other activities devoted to the life and legacy of Charles Adams. So with a little bit of background about Westfield, let's jump back and talk a little bit about who Charles Adams was. As I already mentioned, young man, son of a piano salesman. So he is actually born at 511 Summit Avenue. The house no longer exists where he was born. Like many at the time, he was born in his house. Um, I have to give a lot of this biographical credit both to his, um, the one biography that was written about him called Life of a Cartoonist, 
And I will also give credit to a man named um, Ronald McCluskey, who is a local Westfield man who he has done a number of lectures and interviews. He is sort of the local historian who has studied Charles Adams extensively. Um, and doing the heavy lifting for you, I did watch Mr. McCluskey yesterday give a lecture at the local public library about the life of Charles Adams uh, in 2008. So <laughs> I'm doing the heavy lifting out there for you. Um, just in case you weren't watching um, the Scotch Plains public access television station photograph um, public library talks, I have done the research for you. So The interesting thing is, is that everyone who discusses Charles Adams talks about how growing up in Westfield was a huge influence on him, not just in terms of the Adams family, but in general. That a lot of what he draws, a lot of what he talks about is very much shaped by his upbringing. And there's a lot of speculation. I read a number of different interviews with him, discussions with him asking, you know, what his dark background was like, what was his secret? And he reveals that he had an altogether happy childhood. Very normal, nothing unusual, you know, nothing that he can complain about. He's just a creative kid. And he's a creative kid whose mind is captured very much by the things that he sees around him. So, Charles Adams lives in this house at 522 Elm Street. In the adorable map drawn by Mr. McCluskey, he draws where the high school was. So the Westfield Senior High School, which no longer stands. Um, it's now, I believe, the Board of Education building. And he talks about how he had to walk down a block. And on that block was 411 Elm Street. A house which he walked by every day and is perhaps the first house to claim the distinction of being the inspiration for the Adams Family House. Many, many houses have tried to claim this honor. Now, this house, it is very distinctive in the fact that it is a quote-unquote Victorian house. I've got news for you. The house that Charles Adams was born in, I don't know what year it was built, but I guarantee you it was also a Victorian house. I use the quotes around Victorian because there is no one Victorian architectural style. And you'll excuse me if I put on my architectural historian hat for just a second. The Victorian era, as I have discussed when people talk about quote-unquote Victorian cemeteries, lasted 70 years. Almost. Starts when Queen Victoria is crowned in the 1830s, lasts until her death in 1901. There are at least eight architectural styles that come and go during that period, all of which could be called Victorian because they happened during the Victorian era. Stick, shingle, Eastlake, Queen Anne, Neoclassical Revival, Gothic Revival, Italianate. But when most people are talking about Victorian architecture, what they are discussing is French Empire. Now, French, specifically Second Empire, if you remember your European history, is a distinctive style that is defined by one element, the mansard roof. And the mansard roof is essentially a upper boxed faux roof. Now, the best way I can describe this, if you are not familiar with it, is picture a mushroom. 
how you have the stalk, which forms the overwhelming body of the house, and then you have the cap. So these houses go straight up and then they appear to kind of pop out at the top. And it's like a faux, very steep slanted roof and then it eventually flattens out on top. I guarantee you that you have seen these. Some are very simple, some are more elaborate. Obviously the one that is seen in the Adams Family cartoons is very elaborate. The one at 411 Elm Street, not so much. It's a pretty basic second empire. And when I say that Charles Adams was inspired and had his imagination captured by things around him, I'm sure what captured his imagination was that this house didn't look like other ones. It was interesting. It had different elements. And I confess, as a kid, I loved Second Empire houses. My great aunt Lil lived in one. It was a beautiful house. Couldn't pay me enough money to live in it now. It's not my style. But as a kid, somebody who grew up in a minimal traditional house that was essentially a very small, efficient box, it captured my imagination. She had a library. She had a spiral staircase. She had window seats. I thought it was so exotic. And I think that most kids probably feel the same way. And it's the reason that these continue to capture people's attention. And if you had to pick one architectural style that defines horror movies, it's the Second Empire. Everything from the Adams Family to Norman Bates features a house with a mansard roof that's Second Empire. Now, I've seen a couple of interesting stories about how Second Empire and mansard roofs became associated with horror, but that's maybe another discussion for another day. I think it's fair to suffice it to say that Charles Adams, who eventually will come out and say that he is a huge historic preservation nerd who advocates for preservation of historic buildings, had his imagination captured probably by this and any number of other houses along the way. I'll post the map. <laughs> it does present a very compelling argument. It's kind of entertaining. Now, the other place that he does visit is the local cemetery. Now, already knowing a little bit of the history behind the Presbyterian Church, I'm gonna talk about the cemetery. Now, if you are familiar with the Adams family, they supposedly live in an area called Cemetery Ridge. Often they are portrayed as having a large and elaborate family cemetery next to their house. If you have seen the movies from the 1990s, they definitely promote that. There are a number of scenes that are shot in the cemetery. And of course, lots of jokes that go along with it. This is something that's interesting to me because in Charles Adams's world, the discussion of cemeteries will become kind of an interesting topic. And it's one of the things I wanted to focus on in this episode was to talk about what it kind of tells us about attitudes at the time. But for starters, let's talk about the cemetery itself. So without further ado, the cemetery is technically the burial ground for the Presbyterian Church in the Westfields of Elizabeth. Now, as I already mentioned, the church is almost as old as the town itself. The church is believed to have been established in 1728, and it appears that burial started quite soon after. The earliest marked burial we have 
is from 1730, which would be about two years after the town is founded, though it's entirely possible that there are earlier burials which were either marked with wood or something biodegradable that do not survive or were unmarked. Today, the cemetery measures about three acres. It was obviously, well, it didn't really have a boundary at the time that it was originally constructed. Now, I'm going to walk you through kind of like the description of this because I think it also kind of plays an important role, I think, in some of what captured Charles Adams' imagination. So it is located on Mountain Avenue, which the church is at 140 Mountain Avenue, and the burial ground is actually across the street from the church. Now, probably a good time to mention, if you did see Wednesday and you watched the scenes that are set in Jericho, the town that is adjacent to Nevermore Academy, you have seen the Presbyterian Church in the Westfields of Elizabeth because the church in the television show is almost a dead-on replica of the Presbyterian Church in the Westfields of Elizabeth. Now, I looked through to see, there, there are some slight differences architecturally, ones that you probably would not spot, but the windows and the shape of the windows with the central palladium window and the two arched windows on the side, dead on. I plan on putting up on social media a side-by-side -side comparison of a photo of the real church was the photo from the show, and they are pretty dead on. And I'm going to be honest with you, if you look at Westfield, New Jersey, it's a pretty dead-on copy for Jericho. A lot of the businesses that can be found there are all sprinkled throughout. And Charles Adams very clearly used his town for his inspiration. The Rialto Theater, which still stands today in Westfield, Connecticut, featured in many of his cartoons. Local businesses, antique stores, haberdasheries, all of them inspired both him and eventually the set design for the Adams Family stories right up until the present day. So I think that's important to remember. Now I will say, Cemetery in the show, maybe not the best dead-on example, um, but then again, they never are. So anyways, 140 Mountain Avenue, across the street from the church, you have the entrance to the cemetery. Now the cemetery is roughly square, and it's roughly divided into four sections. Um, there's actually a fifth section, which I'll talk about. So the front half closest to Mountain Avenue is sections one and two. Now, the side of the cemetery that faces Mountain Avenue, faces towards the church, has a retaining wall and a wrought iron fence, as well as a new entrance with double gates and stairs to access the cemetery. All of this was added in 1925. So I can't help but wonder if Charles Adams, who, you know, would have been about 13 years old, watched people doing this work around the cemetery. Knowing what construction methods were like in the 20s, you have to wonder if maybe in the process of constructing things, they didn't dig up a body or two or a couple of bones. I would be very curious to know about that construction. Now, this front half of the cemetery, and the, the cemetery is roughly divided in half by like a walking path, contains 760 graves, Section one is the oldest, and it's composed of individual graves. There's about 350 of them. Section two is slightly larger, also individual graves, and holds about 410 graves. These are significant because they represent that colonial period. If you go back and you listen to the episode that I did on the New Haven Burial Ground, I go over the history of the Puritans, and 
The fact is, even in other cities and towns prior to the establishment of the Royal Cemetery movement, this was pretty much the, the tradition. If you died and two weeks later Mrs. Smith died, you were buried next to Mrs. Smith. You were not buried with your family, it was not organized, it was on a need basis. Now, while these are roughly arranged in rows, they are a little bit haphazard. Um, it has been mapped pretty extensively. Um, I read through the full National Register listing. It was listed on the National Register in 2007 under criterion A, C, and D. But you can see that this is a typical colonial era burial ground. Now, when I say colonial era, it's basically going to be that first hundred years. The back sections, the newer sections, section three and four, um, were not laid out until 1821. So from 1728, when the town is founded, for the first hundred years, the 760 graves really represent the entire town. The other three sides of the cemetery are surrounded by chain link fence. Boo! Nobody likes chain link. Um, as I already said, the rear sections, section three and four, uh, are made up of family lots, showing that even a small churchyard cemetery was kind of evolving with the times and seeing that people wanted to buy family plots to keep people together. So the lots are roughly 10 by 20. They are not all sold out. Um, they haven't done active burials there, at least full body burials since 1958. Um, but you can see it's kind of haphazard where there is a lot of empty gaps in between. So there are 44 of these family plots in section four and 42 in section three. Now, the older stones are cool because they are primarily brownstone. Now, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the full episode I did on brownstone because in it, I talk about how it is prevalent all through the Connecticut River Valley, which stretches from Massachusetts down to New Jersey. So this is a perfect example of a more southern cemetery that utilized brownstone, and most of it was quarried um, in nearby Feltville or in Newark. Now, this is, you know, it's really striking, some of these stones. They are quite beautiful. You can obviously find pictures online and find a grave. I have not been there, full disclosure, I have not been to the cemetery. Uh, but I very much enjoyed looking at this, looking at some of the photographs I saw. Um, there is probably a very heavy Dutch influence, and I say this because of the prevalence of tulips. So actually, the earliest stone in the cemetery, that of Noah Miller from 1730, features tulips. And these tulips are in all different places, so that some of them are on the tympanum of the stone at the top where normally the death's head motif would be. Some of them form borders down the sides. Some of them are quite elaborate. And so from the 1730s to the 1760s, tulips are one of the most predominant decorative forms that you see on these stones. And brownstone being very soft does make for beautiful carving and it holds up better than marble. So some of these carvings are still quite spectacular. The soul effigy starts to take over in the latter half of the 18th century. There are a couple of unusual variations. So a lot of carvers, um, specifically um, a man named John Hand Osborne from nearby Scotch Plains, he did a variation on the soul effigy that actually substitutes initials in the middle, which is kind of his unique stamp on things. But 
with all deference to my friends who love Carver studies, I can't talk about the cemetery without talking about Ebenezer Price. So aside from having a great name, he is perhaps New Jersey's most prolific 18th century stone carver. And it appears that in section one and section two of the cemetery, almost every stone was either carved by Price, who did sign his work, one of his several apprentices, or was inspired by his style. Now, you know I am a long time <laughs> hater on Carver studies. I think they're overdone. But I have read enough about Mr. Price to be able to say that there are a couple of distinctive things about his soul effigies. And I have seen several that are quite beautiful. One of my favorites actually is not in the cemetery, but it's a ledger stone that has a soul effigy that rather than having the wings outspread, the wings kind of intertwine below it. It almost looks like the caduceus. Um, really unusual. I had not seen that variation on the soul effigy before, and it's quite beautiful. But his definitely take on a very kind of dandified appearance because the hair is always in these tight little curly cues. Um, very expressive faces. And, and like I said, because they are in brownstone, quite lovely. We know of at least three apprentices with signed stones. Um, the first being David Jeffries, the second being Jonathan Ashen, and the third being Abner Stewart, which I also found a great newspaper article where Abner Stewart had run away at the age of 12 from his apprenticeship and had to be brought back. Um, there's possibly more. Um, I read through um, Mark Nonestad's, um, and I believe Veet was writing with him on this, um, analysis of early gravestone carvers in New Jersey, the article that he wrote on it. And he definitely acknowledges that there are most likely several other apprentices who did not sign their work. But based on their skill level, they probably had something to do with this. Now, who was buried here other than that? Well, you have 70 Revolutionary War veterans, veterans of the American Indian, uh, excuse me, the uh, French and Indian War. You have a lot of the early settlers of the town all buried here. And then as the 1820s emerge, you start to have more family plots and not knowing Westfield, obviously, as well as someone who lives there, I can pass along the fact that most of these are families that are prominent families that have streets named after them and businesses named after them in town. So people from Westfield would immediately recognize them. And you could also see just based on the names that there are certain families that have clearly been burying there for generations, if not centuries. Things start to slow down in 1868 with the founding of Fairview Cemetery roughly a mile away. This is obviously a little late for a rural style cemetery. It's very late. I would, in fact, even say it's beyond what I would consider the rural cemetery era. But definitely it's a cemetery more in that vein, and that quickly takes over as the primary burying ground. As I already mentioned, the last full-body burial was made in 1958, so slowly over time, people, you know how it goes, they transition to the new cemetery, and the old one largely becomes forgotten. There was a section, which I think does kind of note how important the cemetery was, though, where in either 1972 or 1982, I have seen both numbers, so I can't speak to it. It's basically in the upper part of section one that has been set aside for cremains. So I believe you can still be buried there if you choose to buy a cremation spot. Um, and it's not the prettiest area. I will tell you, it's mostly like gravel. Um, this definitely has the vibe of a colonial era cemetery. 
I will like respectfully disagree with the National Register form, which says that the majority of trees are left to the edges for practical purposes. I would say that the majority of trees were never there. Because if you look at historical aerial photographs of this, in the 1930s, there was not a tree in this cemetery. <laughs> they're all they're all planted probably in the 40s through the 60s as kind of like beautification projects. And so these trees, some of them are getting pretty big now because they were planted 70 years ago. But prior to that, I think like the majority of burial grounds, this was just open. Um, so I would respectfully disagree with the National Register analysis that they had always been planted around the edges because let's be honest, a lot of trees, they don't live that long. So the odds that trees that were planted in the 1730s would still be alive, it's pretty, pretty slim chance. Now, let's go back to Charles Adams. I think this is significant. Now, where I say they didn't do a great job on Wednesday, the faux colonial burial ground next to the church, it, it just was not terribly well executed in my opinion, but I think this cemetery was probably interesting to him for a number of reasons. Because you have interesting epitaphs, ones that capture the imagination. You have interesting names. You have some very vivid and unusual carvings. You have a wide variety of stones, with many at that point being almost 200 years old, and a lot more contemporary ones. You have a mix of marble and brownstone. I will say it doesn't appear that there are any like really grand Victorian era monuments that would have captured his imagination. There's not even really like impressive obelisks in the cemetery. But I can see how a young man who would go and would hang out there and would read the names and would read the epitaphs would definitely have his attention turned by this. And as I said, I can imagine as they were building this wall and making improvements, somebody who was walking down the street almost every day, because again, this was only about three or four blocks from his house, it would be a shady place to sit and to read a book or to play with your friends and maybe watch the workmen as they built the wall. And so I can certainly see that. And he has talked about this, about the inspiration that he drew from this cemetery. Thinking not just about death, but the lives of the people who were buried there. And certainly if the Adams family does anything, there is a reverence for those who have gone before. Macabre, yes, a little bit morbid, absolutely. But there is this reverence for the dead, whether it's through seances, funerals, things like that. There is a, a comfort and an ease with death that I think in general did not exist. I also think it's worthwhile to talk about because, you know, so Charles Adams is born right before the beginning of World War One. You know, he was born in 1912. So in 1942, he's gonna be 30 and I'm gonna be talking a little bit more about his life. But he actually is growing up in the prime era of urban renewal, of cemetery removal, of an attitude where, like with the Memorial Park movement, there is a push to move away from death, to not talk about death, to not deal with it. There is a lot of trauma from the two world wars and the Great Depression. Do I think it's unusual that Charles Adams at this dark time actually starts to write these darkly comedic comics? I don't think it's an accident at all. 
And I think that his willingness to put death and to put bad things out there to people was a way of dealing with this darkness. And I'll talk a little bit more about this as I go through the rest of his life. So, in 1929, he graduates. Um, you might be interested to know that some of his first cartoons were featured in his high school yearbook, which was called The Weather Vane. Might be interested, that's the name of the coffee shop in Wednesday. Um, I have heard that it was also a nod to the presence of weather vanes in several of other Tim Burton's films. He then went to Colgate University in Hamilton, New York for about a year, which was apparently the feeder school that almost everybody from Westfield went there. Only lasted a year. In 1930, he transferred to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, which now bears an entire wing in his name that was donated by his second wife, Barbara Barr. And eventually ended up at the Grand Central School of Art, which was actually right above Grand Central Station. And this is where he will finish his artistic career in 1931. He is very interested in people. He is very interested in kind of bustling scenes of everyday life. And I think he very much hones this living in cities because I think he realized that, you know, whether you're in a small town or a big city, people are just people. And I think he was very interested in sort of comedic observations about people in their everyday lives. So, and again, I've seen a variety of years. I'm going to go with 1932 because it's the most common one I have seen. He sells his first cartoon to The New Yorker, which had long been his dream. And this was a cartoon featuring a window washer. It's worth noting that of the roughly 1,300 comics that he posted, he published in his lifetime, only about 150 of them featured the Addams Family. The overwhelming majority of the cartoons were of other things. So he sold his first cartoon for $85. He also was at the time working for True Detective magazine, which if you're not familiar with kind of like the old pulpy magazines, it was part tabloid, part detective story, um, but they featured a lot of what we would today call true crime. Um, and he was actually hired to touch up the photos, not to make them less gory, but to make them more gory. And he often talks about the fact that he thought they looked a little ridiculous after they had been retouched to make them more gory. Um, I think it's noteworthy to mention that he was a freelancer his entire life. He published for different magazines and he had a really good life. Like if you read about him, you know, he had a apartment that overlooked the Museum of Modern Art Gardens. He drove really nice cars like a Bugatti and a Bentley. He dated Jackie Kennedy, for God's sake, along with, you know, a number of other Hollywood starlets. So like he did just fine for a guy that was okay looking and was a little goofy and was best known for writing cre creepy cartoons. 1938, Moment of Truth, August 6, 1938, he publishes what, the first of what will become the Adams Family cartoons, and it features Morticia and what would become Lurch standing there dealing with a vacuum salesman who is toting all of the benefits and how no house in America should be without the most modern vacuum cleaner, and then of course it shows the dilapidated mansion behind them. Worth noting, the Adams Family gets their name just from the fact that Charles Adams created them. He did not call them the Adams Family. None of them had names until the Adams Family television show premiered in 1964, at which point he named the characters. With the exception of Gomez, which he came up with a number of names that he liked for Gomez, 
Uh, but it was actually John Astin, father of Sean Astin, of Goonies and Lord of the Rings fame, husband of Patty Duke, who eventually chose Gomez because he liked it the best. Another fun fact, which you may or may not know. He takes a break during World War II when he is enlisted at the um, Photographic Center for the Signal Corps in New York City, at which point he works as a cartoonist. And he works as a cartoonist making training and education films from the troops. Now, brief mention of um, his private life. So he is married three times. The first time to Barbara Jean Day in 1943 at St. Paul's in Westfield. Um, doesn't last terribly long. He will be married a second time to Barbara Barb in 1954. Um, she is, as I already mentioned, the one who donated the wing at Penn, and she was also a lawyer and very, very smart. Um, so she is the one that actually ended up with all of the rights to his cartoons and made quite a bit of money out of it. These two ladies, um, supposedly the inspiration for Morticia Adams, choose to believe it or not, they were both tall, leggy women with dark hair. I don't see a whole heck of a lot of resemblance. Um, I think he was trying to make more just stereotype characters with the Adams family, but that's just my take on it. 1952, he paints um, the mural, which today is at Penn State University um, in the Paternal Library. Um, really, it's basically the Adams family at the beach. Um, and this was interesting. It was originally. Um, at a restaurant, and then eventually it was gifted to Penn State, and it remains there as well. Now, a couple of interesting observations. He had a close friendship with Boris Karloff, supposedly the original Lurch. If you look at the first Adams Family cartoon, Lurch has a beard and looks a lot like kind of like a wolf man. And eventually, as you later see what he emerges into and what he's still portrayed as, it's more of a Frankenstein monster. And so it's believed that he was an homage to Boris Karloff, and Boris Karloff actually writes the introduction to the first Charles Adams book, Drawn and Quartered. Um, now, getting back to the television show, which launches in the 60s, while Adams fleshed out the characters for the show, he was never a huge fan. Um, I loved that somebody joked he was never around on Friday nights because he always had a date. And so he seldom watched it... Um, I think he felt, at least from what I have read, that the television show dumbed the Adams Family down a little bit too much. Um, obviously, they were put out there to be a direct competition to the monsters. This was the time of very, like, lowbrow kind of slapsticky comedies on TV. Um, you know, things like Green Acres and Petticoat Junction and that type of thing. It's at this time that the Adams Family is also banned from The New Yorker by then editor William Sean. So while he was editor from 1964 to 1987, the year before Charles Adams' death, he did not publish any Adams Family cartoons because he felt that they had been lowered by putting the Adams Family on TV. Which is rough, but Charles Adams certainly keeps working. He publishes cartoons, he will publish 12 books, collections of his cartoons with other things in his lifetime. One will be published posthumously after he dies. So he certainly leaves his mark regardless of this. Um, in discussing the Adams family, he says that, quote, they do the things we all want to do. He claimed that they never create fear, 
but rather try to diffuse it, that they infuse horror with playfulness, and they prove that we are all weird. Now, one of the things that really struck me is that probably the most popular Adams Family cartoon, and even if you have not seen the original cartoons, you have probably seen it, is the famous cartoon published in 1946. And it's also the opening to the 1991 Adams Family movie, where you have a group of carolers standing outside the Adams Family house, and the Adams Family is up in the tower about to pour boiling oil on the characters and the carolers down below. Very famous. And he talks about this, how we've all been in that situation where something is just annoying us and we wish that we could just pour boiling oil over them. And I bring this up because I also think about how progressive it is. So this is Christmas of 1946. When we think about the classic, one of the classic Christmas stories, It's a Wonderful Life, that comes out in 1947. This image, which is so dark and is so progressive in some ways, is older than It's a Wonderful Life. The classic feel-good, Capricorn, Frank Capra, syrupy, over-the-top story of George Bailey. It's older than that. And it goes to show that this is not a modern thing, that we have always had this need to kind of be able to go outside the box. So sadly, Charles Adams does die quite young. He actually has a heart attack in his car parked in front of his um, apartment building in New York City. Um, and then his wife, um, <laughs> in a particularly dark moment, so his third wife is a woman named Marilyn T. Matthews Miller, uh, born in 1926. Um, he had met her through their shared love of animals. Um, they worked together volunteering in animal shelters, and they actually got married in the pet cemetery behind her house in um, Watermill, New York on Memorial Day 1980, where they and the wedding party wore black, of course. Um, they had a house together in Sagaponic, New York, called The Swamp, which is now the home of the Charles and T. Adams Foundation. Um, so they had been married about eight years when he died on September 29th, 1988. And her quip to the New York Times was, he was always a car buff, so it's a nice way to go. Um, which sounds like it could be the punchline to one of his cartoons, which I really enjoy. He did put in his will that he did not want a funeral, so there was a large party held in the event space at the New York Public Library, which seems like a fitting finale. He and later T, when she died in 2002, were both cremated and their remains were interred in the backyard in the pet cemetery, along with their beloved pets, both dogs and from what my understanding is, a turtle. Now, his legacy has very much lived on and it's fascinating because I pulled a bunch of articles and at the time of his death, there is like the Associated Press article, which is pulled from the New York Times obituary and it's a very... I hate to say it, but it's a lackluster obituary. But other than that, there's virtually nothing about him around the time of his death. And I think that the new Adams Family movie in 1991 caused a resurgence because since then there have been lots of exhibits of his work. His work is hard to keep on the shelves. They, the individual cartoons sell for anywhere between 15 and 20,000 each, some of them more. Um, noteworthy, Alfred Hitchcock owned two. And Charles Adams actually gets a shout out in the movie North by Northwest, where they describe as the family as something that Charles Adams would create. 
Oh, and he spoke to Adams on numerous occasions saying how much he admired his work. Um, but I think that the resurgence in his popularity has largely come to the new iterations of the Adams family that have been released. And like I said, now you can see lots of retrospective things. They started the foundation. You can visit his old home, the swamp. And in 1991, they actually started an art scholarship for art students at Westfield High School, the high school that he went to. Um, and a number of these folks have gone on to be quite successful cartoonists. They work for the Cartoon Network and things like that. As I already mentioned, in 2018, they started to hold Adams Fest. So it's, it's fair to say that at this point, Charles and his nickname was Chill. I didn't mention that. Um, Adams isn't going anywhere anytime soon. So to both celebrate his, what is, would have been his 111th birthday, as well as the continued popularity of the Adams family, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, about how cemeteries, again, have a positive influence. And I think it's interesting that he kind of came of age in this time when cemeteries were being pushed to the wayside, when cemeteries weren't seen as vital and they continued to capture his imagination. And he taught America how to deal with the harder parts of life, including death and mortality, but to see it through a humorous lens. So an interesting little cemetery adjacent story. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, I will definitely post some photos of the places that I talked about because I was really impressed with how much they had tried to capture that. Um, they even note that the Adams family in Wednesday that they live in New Jersey. They keep saying, well, when you go back to New Jersey. So I love that they really tried to capture who he was and the root of his story and the idea that, you know, creativity can really pop up just about anywhere. As always, if you are enjoying the show, please, first of all, follow along on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Tomb of the View podcast. If you are so inclined and you want to make me smile, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. It really does help me, help make me more visible, help people who are looking for cemetery content find me. I know it takes a couple of minutes, but believe me, it does help an incredible lot. And thank you to you, all of you who have already reviewed. Um, I continue with my project to re-record the original 18 episodes. Thank you to all of you who have downloaded them so far. Wow, the numbers were very impressive. You made me very happy, and I'm so glad that some of you who never got to hear the initial episodes are going back to learn some of that cemetery history now. I will hopefully have another batch of those dropping this week. Um, I have recorded two out of three. The last one I am still working on editing, but you can expect those coming to the feed very, very soon. But for now, have a great week. Take care. Stay spooky. Stay ooky. A little kooky. I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View. And by the way, I'm hopeless. I can't snap my fingers. Otherwise, I would. <laughs>